I'd like to invite you to turn in the Bible to 1 John chapter 1. We have just come through the season of Advent, and as we have completed a calendar year and now begin a new year, we are beginning a new series of messages. And so we're planning, the Lord willing, to work our way through this letter of 1 John, which in a way could be considered Christianity 101. It's a beginning course, if you will, for what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ what it means to believe particular truths about a particular person, namely Jesus Christ, and what it means to respond to the person of Jesus Christ by faith. And so I would invite you now to hear God's word as we read from 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we come to this letter of 1 John, what we have before us is the testimony of an eyewitness of Jesus. If you want to know someone, you need to see that person, you need to hear that person, you need to touch that person with your hands. If you really want to know that person, you need to be in a relationship with them. How do you know if you really know someone? By what you hear about them or by what you've experienced of them? Recently, I had a person who I'd never heard of, never met, contacted me and was telling me about someone that I know, have known for a long time, and they were telling me that this person is not who I believe this person to be. What do you do with that kind of information? Because I've got my long-standing experience with this person, seeing them, hearing them, being in relationship with them, and this person is telling me completely opposite information. Oh, with well, a person that you're you're thinking of might seem a particular way, but in reality, they're really much different. And that's kind of what was going on, apparently, with the people to whom John wrote this letter. John writes to them of Jesus Christ, the Word, the Word of life, who was with God from the beginning, as we know from John 1, he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this eternal word of life, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, has come in the flesh. And John writes as an eyewitness. Now we don't 
know for sure that this letter was written by John. It doesn't bear his name, but early church tradition suggests that it was written by John, and the language is so similar to that of the Gospel of John, that it seems to be without question that John is the author. Besides that, it's obvious from these first verses that this was one who had shared life with Jesus Christ during his earthly life and ministry. We've looked upon him, we've touched him with our hands. It had to be someone who was very close to Jesus. And you might think, Peter, James, and John. Well, we can rule out Peter and James for a variety of reasons. John was the beloved disciple. He was the one who reclined against Jesus at the Last Supper. And I am convinced that it was John who wrote this letter. But how do you know if you know someone? Young people today, you might think that you know someone and someone that you're acquainted with might come and say, oh, did you hear this about this person that you think you know? They're really not what you think they seem to be. But if you have a life experience with that person, if you have firsthand eyewitness experience with that person, you can overrule that hearsay or that gossip by your eyewitness experience. And so we have in this text the eyewitness experience of one who was with Jesus Christ. And so when in the early church people were coming and teaching that Jesus, this eternal word, just seemed to have a body. He didn't really take on human flesh. It merely appeared that he did, or it seemed that he had human flesh, but he didn't in reality. John could give a definitive response and say, no, he did. We saw him, we heard him, we looked upon him, and we touched him with our hands. So there's an ancient heresy known as docetism. It comes from the Greek word dakeo, which simply means to seem or to appear. And it's often rooted in a dualistic kind of mindset that views the spirit as good, the body is bad or evil. And so docetism would say that Jesus could be God. He could be the eternal God, a spirit being, but he didn't really take on human flesh. John answers, yes, he did. He didn't merely appear to take on human flesh. He did, and we've seen him, we've heard him, we've looked upon him and touched him with our hands. And this ancient heresy of docetism is still alive today. There's nothing new under the sun, and so you can look around in various places and see this dualistic mentality that the spirit is good, the body is bad, and so maybe you've encountered those who uh, refer to themselves as Christian scientists or the Christian science church, and they believe that matter is not ultimately real. So what you see, what you feel, isn't ultimately real. And so when you think that you feel a pain in your body, they would tell you that what you're feeling or thinking you're feeling is not ultimately real, and so you just need to go to a practitioner and help them to get your thinking adjusted so you realize that your body's not real, so that pain that you think you feel is not real, you're a-okay. There are different ways of 
talking about this same idea that Jesus merely seemed to have a body. In the Islamic tradition, they do not believe that Jesus was actually allowed to suffer and die on the cross. Either God substituted an imposter, a Jesus lookalike on the cross, or God somehow removed Jesus from the cross because it's the same basic belief. He might have seemed to have had a body, but he couldn't have really suffered. A couple of summers ago, in the summer of 2016, I was in Hungary in Budapest with Jews for Jesus, and we were doing street evangelism. And I encountered a couple of Muslims from North Africa, and they were eager. They were the most eager people that I encountered. They were the most eager to talk. And so they were engaging in conversation, and they wanted to hear about God and what I believed about Jesus, and mostly they wanted to persuade me to follow the teaching of Islam. But they were raising questions like, can God die? Well, of course not. God is eternal. God cannot die. And that's why God took on human flesh in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, so that he could die and pay the penalty for sin that we might be reconciled to God. It is essential that we believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully human, that this eternal God who is life, this word that God wanted to communicate with us, who was eternal with the Father, this word of life is fully God and fully human. He didn't merely appear to have a body, he did have a body, and he lived a perfect life. He died a horrible death on the cross, and he was raised, his body, his physical body, was raised from the dead, and he was seen by many witnesses, and his body then ascended to heaven, from which he will come again in glory with a glorified body. So God does not view the body as evil. God created the body and he looked at the human body after it was made and he said his creation was very good. So God does not have that dualistic view of spirit is good, body or matter is evil or bad. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. And so we have in this letter the testimony of an eyewitness. We can bank our hope on it. As we look at this letter, there are basically three themes throughout this book of 1 John, this letter of 1 John. And as Lee and I were looking through this text the other day, we were talking about the Guggenheim Museum. This year marks the 60th anniversary of the Guggenheim Museum. It was opened in October of 1959 on Fifth Avenue in New York. And some of you have been there. You've seen it in person. Others of us have seen it in photographs. But the Guggenheim Museum is known for its spiral shape or form. And you've got these spirals. And on each level, you have artwork displayed. And so I think we can use that analogy to think about these three themes, but we're not starting at the bottom and working our way up. We're starting at the top, at the pinnacle, and working our way down. Then we're going to drill down from that pinnacle. And the pinnacle is the eternal word who is life took on human flesh. So that's the pinnacle. That's the main theme of this letter of 1 John, that God, who is eternal, took on human flesh in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is central to all of Scripture, but he is central especially in this letter. And so as we think about 
this spiral with its various themes. We're starting at the top. Jesus is at the pinnacle. We're drilling down from there. Now, I know some of you would be familiar with the Led Zeppelin song, Stairway to Heaven. And in that song, there's this picture image of someone who's buying a stairway to heaven as if we could climb or ascend our way to God, either based on our performance or some distinctive of our life. But the Bible makes it clear that that is not possible, that we through sin have been separated from God and we cannot climb our way to God. And so God had to come down to us. And that's what God did in Jesus Christ. The Tower of Babel, the people tried to make a tower so high that they would make a name for themselves. They wanted to ascend to God and be in the place of God. And it says that after they were done building, God still had to come down. So we cannot climb our way up to God. God had to come down. That's the first theme, that this eternal word, Jesus Christ, who was with the Father in the beginning, who was co-eternal with God, co-equal with God, and was equally involved in creation with God, this eternal word who is life took on human flesh at a particular point in history. In the fullness of time, Jesus came and took on human flesh. That's the main theme. And so we're starting there at the pinnacle. We're going to drill down from there. And so we can say there are two other themes, or if you want, you could refer to them as inferences or implications, because Jesus really is the pinnacle, the essential theme of this letter, his nature as God and man. And then from there, there are implications or inferences, or we can say two other themes as we drill down. One of those themes is the vertical dimension of love. So God has come to us in Jesus Christ. He has shown us love. And because of that, we can respond to God with love. Knowing God's love in Christ, we are enabled to love God in return. We are enabled to experience renewed fellowship, restored fellowship with God because God has come to us in Christ. And so throughout the letter of 1 John, we'll read things about obedience. But we need to be cautious when we hear things about obeying and obedience because we so often run to thinking that we can somehow earn our way to God by our performance. The obedience that John encourages in this letter is what Paul would refer to as the obedience of faith. When he wrote to the church at Rome, he began and ended his letter saying that his goal was to bring about the obedience of faith. If you trust God, if you believe that his will for you is good, you will obey him. Much like when the doctor tells you to follow a certain regimen, if you believe that doctor is wise, if you believe that doctor is good and wants what is best for you, you will follow that regimen. So this is the obedience of faith. So there's this vertical dimension of love. We can call it the obedience of faith. That's one of the implications or inferences or an, another theme that we're going to see in this letter as we drill down. And in that, we need to recognize that all of life is worship. Because we, in our human tendency, want to just make life about moralism. Be a rule keeper. Do what's right. Go out and do the right thing. But all of life is worship. God wants us to live in response to what he has done in Jesus Christ. To receive and to respond in faith. 
So there's the vertical dimension of love. There's also the horizontal dimension of love that those who have come to know God's love will love others. John says, if you love the father, you will love the son. You will love his children. It's inconsistent. It's inconceivable that someone who has experienced the love of God in Christ would withhold love from others. And so we're going to see that horizontal dimension as we drill down through this letter. God is concerned, like all of us are, that we have healthy relationships. God wants us to enjoy godly relationships with one another. And so we must first understand who Jesus is. That is central, and out of that flows everything else. And that's true as we consider our relationship as these two churches that are pursuing a merger. We began with the elders months ago talking about what is essential. And the biggest essential is who is Jesus Christ. If we agree on who Jesus is, if we believe that he's one person with two natures, fully God and fully human, then we have common ground from which to work. And then out of that flows love for God, obedience towards God, the obedience of faith, and love for one another. This word, who was in the beginning, took on human flesh. So we've seen that Jesus didn't merely appear to be human. He was, in fact, and is fully human now and forever. At one particular point in history, he took on human flesh and he continues to be fully God and fully human. Someone might ask, well, why did Jesus have to be fully God? Couldn't it have been good enough if he was a perfect person? Well, no. We read in scripture, who can forgive sin but God alone? And it's a rhetorical question and the expected answer is no one, only God can forgive sin. And so in order to forgive sin, Jesus had to be fully God, and he was and he is. But in order to forgive human sin, he also had to be fully human, and he is. He had to be fully human in order to pay the price, the penalty for human sin. So Jesus lived and died and rose again to rescue us from sin and death. And in Christ we can have fellowship and communion with God. We see this in verse 3, that we might have fellowship with the Father and also with his Son, Jesus Christ. We have come to the Lord's table today. We have come to experience communion, fellowship with God at the table. And that's an amazing thing, that the God of eternity would allow us to enter into his presence He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you may remember the story of Esther, how she was chosen by the king to be his queen, but she could not enter the king's presence without the king's permission. And here we have come into the presence of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has done everything to open the way for us through Jesus Christ. So in Christ, we can have fellowship and communion with God But the question is, who do you say that Jesus is? That's always been the most important question. Jesus asked his disciples, he said, 
Who do people say that I am? And they told him a variety of answers. Then he turned the question to them personally and said, but who do you say that I am? Do you believe that Jesus is fully God, fully human, that he who is eternal with God the Father and the Spirit took on human flesh, lived and died and rose again for you so that you can be forgiven? That's the gospel, that you can be restored through what Jesus Christ, the God-man, has done in your behalf. Embracing this word of life, this eternal word of God by faith, brings joy. When Jesus is our treasure, we rejoice when others treasure him. In verse 4 of chapter 1 in 1 John, he writes, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And your Bible may have a, a little note in the text there by the word our, or you may have a translation that uses the word your there. There's a principle in um, Bible translation that you go with the most difficult reading when the original text has a variant. We don't have the original author or manuscripts that were written to this church, but we have reliable copies and manuscripts, and some of them have the word your, some of them have the word our. The rule of thumb is when you come to a variant like that, you go with the more difficult reading. Because if you've got a scribe who's copying something down and he comes to something that he can't figure out, he might be tempted to change it to make it more easily understandable. And you could understand why someone writing along, copying this down, could change our joy to your joy. That makes sense. We're writing this so that your joy might be complete. It's harder to understand our joy. How do we get more joy by writing these things to others. Well, our joy is increased when it's shared. Evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We have found the bread of life in Jesus Christ and we have found joy in him. We want you to know him as the bread of life and find joy in him as well. So it is not wrong to seek our joy in the eternal good and joy of others. We can look at human analogies for this and when you are doing something for someone else and it gives you joy, even if it's maybe a difficult, unpleasant task, but you have joy because your joy is found in the joy of that other person. So when our children were learning to drive and I was teaching them, I gave them at least a cursory lesson about how to change a flat tire thought that would be helpful for them to know. And, and so I suspect that if they needed to, they could do that. But a few years ago, one of our daughters was going to a worship night out on the east side of Columbus. It was about this time of year. It was dark and it was cold and it was raining. And we got a phone call that she was on 270 south of the airport going towards Main Street along the edge of 270 with a flat tire. What do you do as a dad at that moment? I got up and I went, got in the car, and hurried as fast as I could to be there. Thankfully, there was already a state trooper on the scene, but I knew where the jack was, I knew where the spare was, and I got down there and he, this trooper held the flashlight and I changed the tire. And if my daughter would have asked me, Dad, 
Why did you come all the way out here? Why are you down there in the dirt and in the rain and the slime along Interstate 270 on this cold, dark night? And I could say, well, it's my duty as a father, and I just want to show you that I'm a responsible, dutiful father. That wouldn't honor her. But if I say, it gives me such joy to know that you are taken care of. She's not going to tell me, get out from under the car, you selfish pig. All you're concerned about is your own joy. <laughs> if we're doing things for our own joy, there's nothing wrong with that. If we're seeking our joy and the joy of others. And so we want others to have fellowship with us. We're proclaiming, and John was writing these things so that their joy, his joy, our joy might be complete. Our joy won't be complete if loved ones that we know are separated from God in Christ. Our joy won't be as full as it could be. And so we proclaim this truth of Jesus, the God-man, the Word made flesh, so that they may have fellowship with us and that our joy will be more complete. If we're doing it for our own good, there's no boasting and we're freed to love with abandon because we're not trying to earn something from them or from God. We have had our needs met in God, in Christ, and now we're free to pour ourselves out for others. When we embrace the word of life, Jesus Christ, by faith, it brings joy. And when we proclaim that message of truth to others and they embrace him, our joy is made more complete. May the Lord grant us all joy as we embrace Jesus, the eternal word of life, who took on human flesh for us and for our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed that you, the eternal God, would humble yourself and take on human flesh become like us in every way except without sin and that we have an eyewitness testimony to who you are and this testimony is believable and that we can trust it. And so Lord, do not allow our faith to be shaken when someone suggests that this Jesus that you talk about isn't all that you believe him to be. He may seem a certain way, he may appear a certain way, but in reality he's not. Thank you that we have the truth of your word, the testimony of eyewitnesses who saw him, who heard him, who touched him, and we have the testimony of your Holy Spirit in our lives as we look at your word. So Lord, cause our faith to be robust and strong as we look to you and your word and allow our faith in you to overflow in love to you, love to others, and great joy. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.